Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Dr. Joanna Witkin, and I am a cognitive neuroscientist. Real Psych is a new podcast where we share our gorgeously thoughtful opinions on the psychological phenomena playing out in all of your favorite movies. JD, will there be learning? Yes. Will there be science? Yes. Will there be delightfully informal, explorational, informational conceptualizations from two best friends who would be talking about this anyways? <gasps> yes. <laughs> <laughs> What was the emotional <laughs> tone that you were going for? It, you know, it it was supposed to be sort of like apprehensive but excited, and it lent into a little more ecstasy than I think I was meaning to sort of land on. I want to know that person's um, journey. It went a little horny at the end, and I apologize <laughs> to everybody listening. That was, you know, Saturday morning. We're uh, we're doing our best here. Yeah. Doing our best. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, it's the weekend. Um, I went for like a five. Weekend, baby. (laughs) Um, I went for like a five mile walk this morning with my dog, and so I just feel like you know when you like do a really good. I'm I'm counting that as a workout because I barely work out. That's a great workout. I'm just the healthiest person. I made a smoothie. I'm just like, who is this person? I'm just so healthy now. Yeah, and listen, you will forever be this way. Now it's a permanent. It's who you are. New lease on life. Never gonna change. Never gonna change. That's who I am. You don't even need this to try is who those I am new now. puffy cheez its that just came out. <laughs> those are unhealthy and they're disgusting. Did I get a scone on the way back? Yes, I did. Good. Yeah. You know why? Because you earned it. I did. Not that you have to earn food. <laughs> Let's be careful. There is no good food and bad. So food. I deserve a treat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, why dat? You deserve a treat. <laughs> How are you uh, doing? I'm doing well. I'm uh, excited to be sort of gearing into summer and, and really ramping up uh, my private practice lately, which has been really nice. And, yeah, that's um, awesome. I just really like being a therapist so much. Like, I really Isn't love. that crazy? Like, you're just really liking your job? It's really nice, yeah. to be honest. I, I have feel to be like... careful how much I talk about it because it's such an alienating thing to say to people. Well, I feel like you and I, we both started grad school kind of later. We were like the older students in yeah, our cohort. We like were. we took time to kind of explore other things and mm-hmm. so you know, the whole point of that was to have like higher job satisfaction once we landed somewhere and I think, you know, I certainly feel great about like the career that I'm in and you know, yeah. like it's just that's I mean, the whole point of being older. <laughs> I think my reasons for going to grad school were um, less about job satisfaction and more to finally prove to the dad that lived inside my head that I was worthy. <laughs> well, it's so, not not that, right? It's not, like, not that. I yeah. had to prove that I was smart. That's part of it. Uh, so I had to go to grad school. And then somewhere along the, the way in grad school, I was like, eh, screw smart. I'm smart enough. And uh, I like my job now. So it's yeah. a convenient truth. 
But I did have to switch grad programs, famously. 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 Famous. I mean, everything worked out the way it's supposed to, I think. Yeah, everything worked out. I We have an unbelievably successful podcast. It's crazy. I never thought I would be here accepting this award. No, I, I really like... I, I mean, it's just cool to make up something in your head and then do it. I, I don't know. I feel like as someone, I'm not like a creative person. I work with designers and like people who are creative all the time. And I always feel like that's not, I'm outside of that. Yeah. And so to do anything that like feels creative to me as I guess dry as I am sometimes <laughs> in terms of my research, but it's still like, this is a creative process for me. And so... To like put it out there and for even like anybody to listen yeah it's so cool like it's just like and this is just for like we are doing this we have our careers and we you know are like part of systems that we're in yeah. but we also have this thing that's just for us that we get to kind of have complete control over yeah which i think is just it's i mean weird it's, it's exciting y'all if yeah. you're listening like and you want to just like try something with a friend highly recommend yeah, I'll listen to it. Just just tell us what yeah. the podcast is. Just tell us. Yeah. Uh, we'll one-to-one, download-for-download, follow-for-follow. Um, Love that. You, we also had a pretty cool thing that happened with us as podcasters, which is uh, we got a, a comment on Instagram. Uh, yes. Oh, did. my gosh. Oh Do you my want to gosh. say what it was? Yeah, so for Saved, JD's fabulous pick, um, the director of Saved – Brian Literally, Danley. yes, he um, listened, I guess, or, or like, but he commented on our post about the episode and, and said it was good and it was like the most gratifying thing that's ever happened. Right? <laughs> it's amazing. It yeah, like cool. for him to even like have heard about us, you know, like yammering on about his movie. Um, but I think, you know, I think too, like we, we got personal and we also... We said this in the episode, like, it's not like we were like, religion is bad, right? Like, that's not what the point yeah. of the movie was. That's not what the point of our conversation was. Yeah. And I think there's, like, space for both things. With mm-hmm. Like, there's space to criticize things without hating it. Or, like, you know, like, or, yeah. I don't know. And hopefully so, that's what this podcast feels like to people, is, like, yeah. you know, looking at and critiquing. But we're not really trying to critique the films themselves. We're just trying to talk about psychology and it yeah, just so happens yeah. that films are about people and people are about psychology and psychology yeah. are about people and he i mean i, I think like he was uh drawing from personal experience with yeah. the movie so i feel yeah. like it felt even a little bit more personal and so yeah the fact that he even like heard about the podcast is like so it incredible cool. it's yeah. nice to just also like it's such a small world and like it is it's cool to remember that like you know that that movie to him was was what this podcast is to us. You know what I mean? Yeah, and so like having yeah, anybody exactly. reach out and be like, "Hey, I really like that project you're doing," and being like, "What? Me too. Thanks. I like yours." Ah, yeah, feels very it's, cool. It's wild. Yeah, it's so yeah. wild. Yeah, fame has not gone to our heads though. Don't worry, <laughs> we'll never forget where never we started. Never forget. Yeah. Um. Well, speaking of where we started, should we get into picking a movie? Yes, I am super excited to guess. Okay. I am incredibly excited about this week's pick. Yes, yes, yes. it is going to blow your mind. And you're In a very smart a, person, so your mind is hard to blow. Way? I think so. <laughs> okay, awesome. Um, 
So, uh, this movie is uh, near and dear to my heart. Uh, okay. It is from 2011. Okay. It's nice. After our our prime time mm-hmm. special, there is no tagline that I can find. Uh, what I do have here is a quote. Okay. It is again movie 2011. Goodbye, my love, my friend, my pain, my joy. Goodbye. Is this a movie that I've seen, you think? I don't know. It's a big movie. Okay. Um, let me try another one. Okay. Elizabeth is dying. Wait. Fuck you. And she's dying. Is it like a indie film? No, it's a big film? It's a big film. It won uh, at least one Oscar. Okay. Dang, I have no idea. It stars George Clooney. Is it The Descendants? Yes! Yay! <laughs> okay. <laughs> we are watching The Descendants. Oh my gosh. And... I have not seen this, like, fully. I've seen clips and stuff, but I haven't seen the whole thing. It's the movie that made Shailene Woodley a movie star. Ugh. Um, it's the it's what made George Clooney famous. Well, just yeah, kidding. famously. Can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this was his big start. His big, big start. Um, and... The other surprise is we are going to have special guest screenwriter, Academy Award winning screenwriter of this film, Jim Rash, oh on my our God. podcast. Yeah, that's correct. My mind is blown. That's right. amazing. Oh, my God. I'm such a fan of his. So he is going to come on. He's going to talk to us about the movie. He's going to let us talk to him about the psychology of the movie. And it's going to be a real cute time. Oh my gosh, that's so cool! Like, I mean, talk about like the director commenting of Saved commenting on our thing, but now we can like actually talk to someone who yeah. made this movie. Oh my goodness, that is so exciting! JD made this movie, has an Oscar for it. Yeah, it's coming on our podcast. Yeah, I'm. Oh my gosh, it's the ultimate get. It's the ultimate get. Also, oh, I can't just, wait. Jim, uh, for those of you who, who don't know, and we'll talk about this more in his introduction, is an unbelievably talented actor and writer and director. Uh, and so um, really excited to have him here and oh uh, to get to talk with us a little bit. And we can talk about the psychology of grief and we can talk about all of those things. Um, and I'm really, really excited to do this. Me too. Oh my gosh. What a fun surprise for me specifically. Yeah, I know. I'm pretty (laughs) excited. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll be back after the break. Bye. Bye. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com.
All right, world. We are back. We are back, 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 back. And we have a special guest. We have one Jim Rash in studio with us. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Nice, thanks for having me. Our first screenwriter of the, of, of the world. This is exciting, yeah. I'm this... trying not to be uh, starstruck right now. Oh, good. <laughs> Over Zoom. Thank Joanna, you. it's still me. <laughs> it's just me. Yeah, I just I wish JD would feel like that every time he sees me, you know, as a friend, you know, like it's the first time. I mean, listen, I do get excited every time I see you. Well, you are a very good friend of mine. Uh, oh. Uh, Sorry, my best friend? Is that what you needed? Finally. <laughs> finally. <laughs> contractually. Contractually. Once you factually. say it, it's contractually. Oh, it's it's there. It's in. <laughs> um, but we, it is pretty funny to have you on the podcast because we normally like talk about movies and just rip them to shreds. I mean, Good. this is going to yeah. feel really different because we normally watch movies that we liked. And this time we chose yours, yeah. your, your film. And it was the opposite <laughs> reaction. Yeah. It was like, what a piece of shit. I mean, you know what? I thought the direction was beautiful. I uh, thought the acting was gorgeous. Good. The cinematography. cinematography it was the writing. That was, yeah, no. it was the writing that was you know, tough. I've always felt like it was a relay race with this movie and I dropped the baton. Yeah, you know, listen. And I knew it. Listen. And my baton was a pen. For the last 10 years, Hollywood has been like, oh yeah, Jim Rash got that pity Oscar. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that pity Academy Award. They were like, if he shows up, let's just give it to him because he seems so fragile. I, yeah, so fragile. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, that time... That, that Ben Affleck won it, and everybody was like, that's Matt Damon's Oscar. And we were right. all like, sure, right. and sure, for okay. everyone else, it was that Snap Faxon and Alexander Payne's Oscar. Yeah, it was, it yeah. was I mean, the, all the jokes really rang yeah. true yeah, as Nat. Yeah, three on stage is dead weight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, the bald one. Exactly. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit, what is your relationship at this point to this movie? How do you feel about this movie? <laughs> what if I was on the same page? Finally, someone's uncorked my feelings about it. No, uh, do you mean, uh, in general, I love it, of course. Yeah. It was an amazing experience. I had never, and Nat at the time, uh, either, had uh, adapted something from source material, from a fantastic book already uh, by Callie Hart Hemmings. And so uh, it was a challenge, you know, and, and we you know learned by doing, basically, and then also to be working with Alexander Payne and then, because uh, originally he wasn't going to direct it, he was, you know, a producer on it, mm -hmm. but he was busy with what would be uh, downsized. Uh, okay. With Matt yeah, Damon. yeah, yeah. But that got stalled because of. Second Matt Damon reference of this episode. I know. God, if we get three, y'all, he magically will call. He'll magically. <laughs> he'll show call up. in, I'm yeah, sure. He'll have some. Please thoughts. hold for that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so it was like, yeah, it was an amazing experience. I don't know what else I would say, but I love the movie because also Alexander went to obviously Hawaii, uh, spent a lot of time there in his pre-production and I think fleshed it out even more because the screenplay, you know, you have so much about Hawaii, but until you're like on the ground, I think you can add so many more layers to it. Yeah, I think one of my favorite things about this movie is, you know, and especially thinking back on like, okay, this is like the, the, the way that I think we've thought of colonialism, you know, in the next 10, you know, in the 10 years following this movie, the way we've thought about sort of white occupation of these territories. And like, I was watching it and I was like starting and I was like, uh-oh, George Clooney as like inheriting, inheriting like Hawaii. And then like, I really appreciate the way the movie is like, hey, this is super weird and messed up. Like it's... Yeah. 
is this yeah, our yeah. land? Is this anybody's land? It's really, yeah. What did and you even think? The, the law, like the perpetuity yeah. or something. There's like some law against having land passed down forever. Yeah. Like, yeah. And that's kind of like the whole central part of the movie. Um, I, I actually never seen it before. What did you um, think? So this is great. Yeah, I loved it. I mean, it was it was so good. So I'm glad to have the excuse to watch it finally. Yeah, I this was my second viewing. I think I saw it when it was in in the mix. Um, it did quite well. Uh, mm-hmm. But in the in the for your consideration season um, mm-hmm. and I hadn't seen it since it was really fun. So what what happens in this movie, Joanna? Yeah, let's synopsitize. So, as you said, we we open with uh, Matt King, who's George Clooney. Yeah, right? George Clooney. Um, or actually, we open with the wife. Yeah. On a speedboat. Like, on a speedboat. Yeah. Yes. Um, cuts too. Thrilled yeah, about that cut. Thrilled about yeah. that cut. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had notes, and and Alexander took it. Jim was like, we, "Let's keep we, it in." And we put that cut in. Yeah. Yeah. We put it in. <laughs> you know, Alexander's like, "It's not working." I go, "Got it." Cut two. Cut two. Cut two. Yeah, cut to her in the hospital. Yep, she's in a coma. He is uh, there kind of trying to process everything. You see that he has a daughter who is getting into some trouble. Young daughter, Scotty. Mm -hmm. It's about 10 years old. And then um, then he's trying to deal with her. He seems really like there's a voiceover with him kind of. He's really busy. He's like has this role in his family about um, how to sell this land because of this rule about right. having land perpetually. Right. Um, and so he's kind of in charge of that, but he has been really conscious to only live off of his income, mm-hmm. whereas a lot of the cousins have spent a lot of their fortune, and so there's pressure from the family to sell for you know the highest bid. Right. And so he's kind of dealing with that whole, because he's at the end of the day, the person who like kind of signs off on that decision. Um, and so you see he's, you know, get this picture of him being like a pretty busy dad, maybe an absent father, absent husband. Um, and now he's kind of dealing with everything and, and struggling with it. Um, yeah, and so in that struggle, Scotty's acting out. They uh, decide to go collect the older daughter, Alex, Alex. who's at boarding school mm-hmm. on the big island. And um, she has some, like, Trubs. Yeah. Yeah, She's drunk and hitting golf balls at her fancy school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And she used to go to Puenaho, which is like this really big school in in Oahu that actually I went to a lot of, I went to high school with a lot of kids who went to Puenaho. Oh, really? Yeah. There's like two big high schools uh, on Oahu, Puenaho, and the other one is, I think, a Catholic school that that my housemate in college for several years went to. Sorry, Chidi, I can't remember the name of your high school. Uh, but yeah, she just so, switched it off. Yeah, she, she just, just turned this pop. Yeah, she's done. Chidi's yeah. not listening anymore. Um, and uh, and so he brings her home, um, is sort of asking her for help with her younger sister, Scotty. And in doing so, in appealing for her help, he says to her, while she's sort of reacting and, and being a little bit combative, he says, your mom's going to die they're they're gonna pull the plug and she has kind of this really beautiful moment where she loses it like really Mm -hmm. and she says something that is like so simple but so real where she's like why did you tell me this when I was in the pool yeah yeah it's my favorite yeah which I think is like so 
I mean, as somebody who has gone through like the loss of a parent in the last couple of years, like the just the the news of it all is just like, I mean, I'll I'll just name like when my when my dad died, I was uh, I found out via text message, and it was in the morning, and I was in bed, and like twenty minutes later, I I said nothing. I just was sort of sitting in bed, awake at like six thirty in the morning or something like that, and I I looked, and like twenty minutes later, I got another text from somebody that I was supposed to go on like a date with. <laughs> And this dude oh, wow. texted me and was like, hey, I actually, like, we had met through, like, Tinder or something. He was like, actually, I met somebody and I'm going to, like, I really think I should just focus on that. So like, I'm, like, canceling our date. <laughs> oh, my God. And I just texted back, like, well, that's fine. I just found out my dad died, so I probably can't go on a hike today either. <laughs> like, because I just yeah. had no... Yeah. Yeah, that yeah, was your of cool course. line. That, uh, that, was, was, that was my, this like... not the time. That was my, like, cool. you do it. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I got to cancel too. I got to like, cancel too. I think I later like texted back and was like, I'm really sorry. That was so intense. But I just like, it was like 20 minutes later. I had no emotional filter. No. Yeah. And it's like such yeah. a, yeah. And that's kind of one of my favorite things about this, this movie. And you and I talked a little bit about this is all their like reactive grief where it's people yeah. being kind of mean yeah. when they're dealing with bad news. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so she's kind of pissed. I mean, that's not her being necessarily mean, but she's, throwing it back in his face and she does throw it back in his face in the next scene where she says she was cheating on you yeah she's grappling also yes with her feelings for her mother because she's mad at her mom and now her mom is dying yeah and that is complicated yeah i mean a lot of that reactivity is really directed towards other people yeah like it's not even just their emotional reaction it's it's targeted towards the people that they're around yeah and there's a lot of the like sort of slinging of that anger Mm -hmm. and so they then decide to find uh, they're going to go around and tell some of the people that need to be told um but uh, to say goodbye yeah and so george clooney runs over to their friend's house in his boat shoes which is just such a good like flap 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 Mm -hmm. flap flap like just such such a dad outfit it's such a dad outfit (laughs) yeah those jeans they they work really hard to make george clooney look not as hot as george clooney (laughs) billowy shirts those billowy shirts those ill-fitting jeans they had to work hard to make him not just look like the hot dad of hawaii casual yes yeah and he's in boat shoes i mean it the tone of the whole movie is kind of like proactively mundane in a way like it really is like letting you just sit in the sort of funk yeah. of the grief which i think mm-hmm. is really accurate well because i think i think it was beautiful not that this is within that writing part of it or within the book necessarily but i do think that we often you know like to label something like is it a comedy or a drama you mm-hmm. know and then obviously we have dramedy but i think for people we forget how quickly our emotions shift mm-hmm. And if when, let's just say in that department, when he tells that story again, he will be laughing about, I ran in some flip-flops. Yeah. You know, in other words, our, our, our ability to look back at something and go and find that humor in the moment, in what story you just told. Yeah. About being texted yeah. by a, a, a date <laughs> on the same time. And it was crushing. And so I, I think the ballet between those things, which is always the mundane, which mm-hmm. is why mm-hmm. I think around any... You know, for most people, when they're in the grieving process, I shouldn't say this, I'm not the specialist, but you know, when you're in this funeral situation, this, these moments of levity, a moment of something where we're laughing or joyously, it's you can feel everyone's bodies release yeah. this thing. Yeah. So it makes sense to me that 
what's happening in this moment mm-hmm. is mundane but also ridiculous and allows the audience to go like a moment of humor and this guy will think about it later. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he probably will. So he goes and he confronts uh, their, their couple friends uh, to be like, you knew about this, didn't you? And then they're sort of like, yeah. And then he releases at them that she's dying, that it's done, that it's yeah, over. He's kind of been slingshotting that. Like he did that to Alex. He does that to the friends in like this very reactive way. Yeah. I mean, with Alex, it almost felt like him not so much slingshotting it at her as him like asking for help, being like, no, I really need you to help because she's dying. And then he sort of is like, oof. I just told her that her mother is done. Like, I think in this one, it yeah. feels very well, like... she wasn't, she mm. wasn't like reacting the way he wanted yeah. her to at first. And yeah. that's when he told her. Because yeah. he was like, I need you to help me with Scotty. And she was kind of not taking that as seriously as he wanted her to. Yeah. And so then he, um, he goes with Alex and they decide to like uh, track down this dude. Um, so they like, uh, cut to, they find out his name, they find out he's on Kauai and they decide to take a trip to find him, to yeah. speak to him in person. Um, and they track him down after a few little, you know, what's it? D- dog legs. Is that a thing? Is that a, like when you what? make it, isn't a dog leg like a weird trail? Oh, like a, oh. Like a few little back corner yeah, turns. Yeah, sure. Let's just say sure. dog legs. You, you're taking a few dog legs. Listen, I don't have a doctorate in English. Uh, I'm sorry. I just went hiking and I took so many dog legs. Yeah, listen. And so I, I hiked longer than I thought. Yeah, exactly. Just a skip lag, dog legged. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, they, they find him. <clears throat> they find the cottage he's staying in and decide to like wait it out he runs into him while while jogging and figures out where he follows him back and and they go to the beach and they meet they discover that he has a wife and two sons mm-hmm. and george clooney and also that it's his cousin's house that he's staying at. oh yeah yes so then he runs into his cousin Bo bridges at a bar that's right and he tells him that the like bitter that they're leaning towards who is has roots in hawaii um, is this guy Brian Spear the his guy, brother-in-law um, yeah is his brother-in-law and he's gonna make a fortune if he sells to this buyer yeah because they sort of have two options that they're considering one is mm-hmm. these like Chicago billionaires and the mm-hmm. other is a much less lucrative deal but it's Hawaiians so they would at yeah. least be like at least Hawaii locals I think they're all right. white Hawaiians in this particular arrangement but sort of who to who to who to give the money to and they find out yeah of course that um brian spear played by skeet ulrich is that no no, no it's Matthew the other one Lillard. matthew lillard the, other, the one. other one <laughs> the other one yeah. from scream. the other one the other killer from scream we <laughs> yeah. did scream already did. yeah oh. matthew lillard yeah. um which is so funny as i was watching them like look for him they, they're like holding a picture of him and i was like what do you mean he looks exactly like matthew lillard <laughs> like, what do you mean you don't know what he looks like he looks <laughs> yeah. exactly like that guy he looks like shaggy yeah he looks like shaggy from scooby-doo <laughs> Um, and, uh, so they, uh, by, by sort of posting out at the beach, he also meets his wife played by Judy Greer, who mm-hmm. is never not excellent. Always Ugh, excellent. Love her. I mean, she doesn't know if she's a friend of the pod as well. Oh. She'll be, the, she'll be next week's guest probably. Doubt. Yeah. And the nicest person. <laughs> I mean, yes. she's got, she's very cool. Do you know, she wrote a book. She wrote a book. 
which if you know Judy Greer and her career, she is in just everything. And she wrote a book that's oh, called, sorry. I don't know how you know me. <laughs> like literally, <laughs> because the number of times people go, what do I know you from? I don't, how do I know you? I don't know. I don't know. And if you're Judy Greer, like the yes, list. You'll just, yes, print out IMDb. I mean, you must. Just, you just start listing. And then they start to lose interest. Yeah. I've been in a, a smaller version of that. Certainly have not had the career that Judy Greer has. But sometimes they always say, what is it? And you start listing. And you can watch them losing interest in this conversation. <laughs> because you have not gotten close. And I go, I feel like I'm at the end of that list. I, I don't. And yeah. then you just sort of like. I'm not Stanley Tucci. And then that's the end of it. I'm not. I'm not <laughs> Stanley Tucci. Oh, wait, you're not Stanley Tucci. You're not Moby? Oh, you're not no. Moby? Never mind. I had somebody once at, uh, I was at this like weird Hollywood, I got to go to the premiere of uh, Real Housewives Girls Trip. And somebody came up to me and was like, I feel like I know you. And I was like, no, I don't think you do. They were like, are you an actor? I was like, meh, no. And they were like, I'm like, I'm not an actor. They were like, you sure? And I was like, no, I, I used to be a hundred years ago. I was never in anything like there's no way and i'm just like shutting this person down and they were like were you in 30 minute musicals and i was like oh yeah okay actually yeah, yeah. i wasn't <laughs> like i just was like so rude to somebody yeah. who had seen me in like a tiny little yeah. theater but show you, but what, what a fuck you to theater I, what you, a just, fuck. you instantly nothing you instantly they go have i seen you and you just said hey theater i will never reference no. you when someone says have <laughs> i seen you in anything dead to me no no yeah so i really just slapped them yeah. away just you know what theater fuck you fuck you theater <laughs> those credits um mean yeah. nothing to me yeah and then i was like oh yeah no i guess uh you've probably actually seen me in a lot of shows <laughs> like, yeah anyway well, you've done a lot of them right a million of them but like they're yeah. so small that like when and especially when i was yeah. at a thing where like tori spelling was next to me it was like no 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 there's like famous people here i'm not <laughs> i'm no tori spelling yeah wow. um anyways so he finds judy greer there we go we're back on track yeah. Uh, and talks to her and finds out a little bit about the kids and sort of like she's, you know, she says Brian Spears, her husband and yada, yada, yada. Um, and then they choose to come back that night and confront him basically. Mm-hmm. And it's George Clooney and Shailene Woodley who this, the, the thing we're not naming is the way their relationship is developing through this movie is so great. Yeah. yeah they become a, really a team, team teammates, a team know, in a session. way. Yeah, yes, exactly. It's really great. Um, and she sort of just really steps up for him in so many ways. And, um, and they go and they, they meet him and he introduces him, himself to um, Brian Spear, uh, Matthew Lillard. And he goes white and freaks out a little bit. And Shailene Woodley, when Judy Greer comes back out, is like, hey, why don't you and I sit outside and you talk to me and the two guys can go in there. And she sort of gives her dad this moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he confronts him, and sort of the the outcome of that is he learns that Matthew Lillard did not love his wife, that she loved him, and that he she wanted to divorce George Clooney for Matthew Lillard. LOL, fiction. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and no offense to Matthew Lillard, but like compared to George Clooney, right, like right. you know, if it's so between me and Matthew Lillard, you know, you go with Matthew about. Lillard. Yes, sure. Exactly. Um, and uh, and they. And that he doesn't want this to get back to his family. He doesn't want this to mess up his family. Um, and he has been in his, in his house. And so just sort of, he comes off looking a little bit like an asshole out of this, I think. Do you get that feeling? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I think he plays it really well of just like he got caught up in this thing. His wife, Elizabeth, like, you know, just 
was in an unhappy marriage looking for an out fell in love with him and he's i don't know was still still wanting to have his family and yeah kind of fell into this thing with her and um yeah but he george clooney tells him that she's dying and if he wants to say goodbye that he should yeah um and, and he says that's what like he came to do yeah exactly and he kind of seems like he might not care that much yeah which is weird and also well, like it's cathartic just, yeah it's, there is a there it, is a certain release yeah i mean i think george clooney like it's this you see him grappling with like the betrayal and the grief and the love for his wife like mm-hmm. at the same time i mean even the way the movie opens he's talking to her in his head and mm-hmm saying that you know like apologizing and saying he's going to do better and saying that he's going to be a better husband like all of these kinds of things that come up when you're dealing with like a life or death situation like that um and he's really just neglected her it seems like but um yeah he's kind of dealing with all of those things Mm -hmm. at once and so this sort of leads to him going to this meeting that he's been talking about this meeting this meeting this meeting and with he, the cousins, with yeah. the cousins, the cousins all vote to sell to this guy who would give the deal to, to Brian Spear. And he decides that he can't do it. That the yeah. land, I mean, they have a nice moment where they see the land and you really see this yeah. sort of like untouched, gorgeous piece yeah. of Hawaii. Scotty, or uh, Alex says, mom and I used to camp down there. And Scotty says, I want to camp there. Like I want that experience. Yeah. And they acknowledge that this is their like great, 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 great grandparents you know, they're, they're the descendants of, you know, a, a, the kings and queens of yeah, Hawaii. Right. Yeah. And so it is, while it is like they are mostly white, as, as George Clooney says at the end of the meeting, we're howly as fuck. <laughs> and the idea that this is ours is, is right. absurd anyways. And yet somehow it is. Yeah. Um, but it's also not. And so like that sort of balance. But, um, I, you know, there's a nice moment where you already are sort of like, oh, no, like, don't don't just put resorts on this. It's like the most beautiful yeah, place no, in totally. the world. And there's even like a scene with uh, one of Scotty's classmates' mothers who's mm-hmm. like saying that she's, you know, watching it closely, hope he makes the right decision, stuff like that. So well cast, that woman. Oof. Just, she, there are a few actors who can end everything on a period the way that she really does. Yeah, is that the one they visit? The one they visit, yeah. who's mm-hmm. like, this is She'll what your daughter guys. said. Yeah. I don't believe oh, it. Yes. Just, yes. just kind of takes the air out of everything. Yes. It's really... Yes. Because you, you just feel it, her just giving him nothing. Yeah. Like, he gets no wiggle room with her. She's very well cast. Um, and so he goes to this meeting and decides he can't sell. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, we obviously know this is informed by more than it, but also, like, he makes this great speech where he's like, this is a weird thing, and we have seven years to figure out what to do with it before it kind of becomes a mess with the trust and, and all of those things. Um, and Bo Bridges, his cousin, is mad at him, but also, like, kind of in the end is like, all right, we'll see. Um, yeah. I mean, it's crazy because each one of them, I mean, there's a lot of people in that space, so, you know, you could assume everybody in, stands to inherit at least, like, four to five million dollars just based on if everybody gets an equal share. Um, which I don't know that that would be the case, but it's a lot of people and it's a lot of money, money that he's sure. choosing to say like, mm. um, then they go to say goodbye to, uh, Elizabeth mm-hmm. and her dad just tears George Clooney apart. And he says, yeah, he's, I mean, he's hard on him the whole, 
movie. the whole movie, um, he really leans into this idea that George Clooney is so stingy with his money mm-hmm. and that if he'd given her her own boat, then she wouldn't have been on that rental boat and she wouldn't have died. And, that, and, he, and he ends by saying, she was faithful to you. Yeah. And in a movie where in every scene when somebody is emoting, they dump and react and explode their grief on somebody, you're sitting there being like, is George Clooney going to tell him that his daughter was not faithful and that he has spent the last like three days tracking down the man that she was about to leave him for because she was having Mm -hmm. an affair and you're waiting for it. Yeah. And he doesn't say it. And that moment is like just, and the, the kids actually are like, you do not know what he is. And I, and I was worried the kids were going to say yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. Right. They don't. And he lets this guy have this vision of his daughter yes. as a good as, person. As he remembers her. And he's and like, yes. be mad at me. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't say those words, but he lets him hate, hate me. It's yeah. easier than, than hating the daughter. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. But it sort of fits with what he's sort of learning the whole way. Yeah. You know, this thing that consumes them to find Brian, you know, mm-hmm. to face off. Mm-hmm. And then you get a layer of truth peeled from Brian. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it starts to take, it starts to go, why, why, why am I, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. And then Judy Greer comes with flowers mm-hmm. and basically says that she figured it out or found out and has this amazing monologue where she just starts screaming at her (laughs) because she's so mad at her, but she has to forgive her, but she's mad at her and she has to forgive her. And she sort of goes back. The thing that's great about this, and I know you're here, Mm -hmm. so cover your ears, but the thing that's so great is that this is not the typical story of, oh, they were going to leave or they whatever. It's so much messier than that. And that's like, he wasn't going to leave. And, oof, that's almost worse. Like, he wasn't going to leave, but he was still going to... That's why Judy Greer went, right? Yeah. Because he said, you know, he didn't love her. He wasn't going to leave you. And she's like, that's why I came. That's why I came. Somebody from her family needed to be here because my husband has done this woman so wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's so much, like, harder than just, like, ending their marriage from, like, oh, he was going to leave her, therefore we're done. It's so much worse than that because it's like, uh uh-oh. It, it reminds me of that um, in uh, uh, Love Actually, where she's like, do I stay? Like, you, is this, yeah. like, what is this? Do I just stay knowing that every day yeah. will always be a little bit worse? Yeah. Like, and just being like, because he didn't leave her in, in Love Actually, yeah. and you don't know if he would have, and that's almost harder. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then, you know, they, she, they pull the plug, um, they, they let her go. And then the last scene is them spreading her ashes yeah. in the water. Mm-hmm. And Just then him and Alex and Scotty. Him and Alex and Scotty. And the, you know, he was so separate from his whole family in the beginning. Yeah. And he's so, he feels so close to his daughters now. Yes. Yeah. And it's the three of them. I mean, they all were so... Yeah, they were spread out. They were literally spread apart yeah. geographically, but also like he feels so much more dialed in. Oh, yeah, because then the, the last part with, like, the ice cream on the couch and they're all yeah. watching TV together, yeah, it really shows, like, how much closer they've gotten. Yeah, I think that was also, I, if I remember correctly, because Alexander Payne 
is a, a child of, and he'd say it this way, I think, but he loves, which a lot of people talk about the 70s movies in America, American movies in the 70s in particular, okay. which is what he was trying to, what he feels like I'm always making, I, to me, he, he always would say, well, he would always say, I feel like I'm making big movies, because in the 70s, this would be big movies, you know, mm -hmm. like budget-wise, I'm saying. Like, mm. And that sort of life goes on, graduate, just holding on them on the couch, you know, mm -hmm. uh, is very, that sort of like, it just continues. So yeah. it gives you a sense that the minutia is back. Mm -hmm. It's just ice cream. This, you know, I think it's, uh, is it Morgan Freeman's voice coming from the Yeah, TV? from the, the yeah. documentary, uh, of the documentary, March of the Penguins. The Penguins, mm -hmm. yes. Anyway. And, well, and it's so intimate too because he's sitting there eating ice cream and she takes his bowl of ice cream. Like yeah. it's not, they're sharing one bowl. Yes. Which yeah. is like to me so also intimate. The behavioral just aspect mm -hmm. of what, what's mine is yours and, 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 Without words. Yeah. Yes. Did you do this they're, before they're... The Way Way Back? Uh, we had written The Way Way Back, uh, and it was a script that, that got on the, uh, what they call the blacklist, and that got us this job. Okay. So in other words, yes. So, no. Way Back would be made many years. Later. Okay. I mean, it the, tonally, the sort of snapshot of life, like, feels yes. so, which I know very much as your voice as a writer, but also, like, they really do um, hold that sort of messy, uh, funny, honest kind of place. Yes. I mean, I think, I mean, I think that's hopefully, you know, it felt like they read in the way, way back. And that's why we got in at least, I mean, among other writers to like right. read the descendants and give our pitch for the adapt adaptation. Yeah. Well, that's a say great something? synopsis. No, I was going <laughs> to say like I, half of it, I forgot. I was like, oh, that's right. Oh, good. I'm so glad we could give you a refresher. Yeah. No, it was great. <laughs> on the movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I just think it is, as this movie is such a therapist dream because it really yeah. is looking at emotions. Like there's every a lot of nuance, scene. right? Like there's, it's a lot of behavior as a function of emotional states, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's, yeah. It's so human um, mm -hmm. and it's so complicated. It's so hard to name so much of what is going on in each of the spaces, but you just feel that that tension yeah. in a way that so many movies like to really make everything really crystalline and really obvious and like this is the central emotion in the thing and you want to feel mm -hmm. one thing at a time. And this is really like all about dialectics. You are feeling two incongruent things totally. constantly mm -hmm. throughout the whole, there's that tension through the whole picture and the the sort of the, what I was calling earlier the like mundane of it all is really just that they're not it doesn't feel manipulative where it's like all oh, the big sweeping music to give you the things and all that it's very sort of uh small and 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 these like micro feelings that you're feeling on a on a bigger level does that make sense yeah no totally yeah Ugh. so it made me think I, a yeah. lot Oh yeah, what were you gonna say? No, no, I was gonna say like, I, like to your point, I don't, I didn't feel like emotionally manipulated the way I do with some movies. I felt right. like I really was just feeling what they were feeling. Mm hmm. Yeah, and it made me feel a lot of the things that like having been through like a parent on hospice, like a lot of the things where you're just sort of like, oh yeah, like the the news becomes so stale a little bit maybe mm -hmm. is like the you mean the news the ultimate news of the of 
the end? The, the, news, the, the news of the end, to me, like, people coming up to me and saying things like, oh, your dad's strong, like, he's a fighter, he's gonna get through it, when it's like... Throwing positivity at it. And it's so, it's so alienating when yeah. somebody says that. Yeah. And anytime somebody says it, it really emphasizes how, like, out of touch they are with what this family's going through. But is that also our behavior? It's like with anything, when we throw whatever toxic positivity or whatever you want to call it, we're putting the fire out because it makes us uncomfortable yeah. to be around that exactly. fire. So yeah. it makes sense that we have a habit of, mm-hmm. of you know, sunny side of the street yeah. on people. Yeah, but when you're not, when you know, when you don't have the option of really being on the sunny side, it's yeah. just so invalidating. <clears throat> yeah. Totally. Yeah. I remember just in context of what you were saying earlier with uh, the initial text, because I was the same. My dad passed away almost five years ago, uh, come July, and it wasn't a text. Now, I knew he had Parkinson's and he was sort of on a, a downward slope fast. And so in my, you know, we, I had made a flight that left the next, cause the night and, or end of the day. And so I made a flight the next day cause they were like, you know, you'll be fine. Of course they tell you mm-hmm. time wise, you'll be fine. So like we would do, you know, I was just like sitting at home. Then I went to the gym just to fill my mind with something else. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you get a text and my sister just texted, you know, he's gone. And so I remember you know, I get a little misty thinking about how we, you know, you're in the weirdest place. Mm-hmm. I'm, <laughs> you know, lifting. And then what do I do? Do I go back to this? I can't go anywhere. I can't leave till the next day. I'm just sort of stuck in this place of not knowing what to do. Sort of crying in the middle of Equinox mm-hmm. at the moment. Yeah. And then putting stuff down. But you, that was, and yeah, you just start processing it there. But then, you know, I don't know. Nothing hits until you walk in the door of your home, though, I think, when I got home. And by that, I mean uh, actual home. When I got yeah. to North Carolina, yeah, I the door and saw my sister's face. I don't think anything got real until I saw her face. Yeah. I, I don't know when I... I think, yeah, when I went home the next time was a few months later because this was in COVID, and I didn't... Mm, worse. Yeah. Yeah. So, should we talk about some, some science? Yeah, let's do it. Let's jump into the research. Yeah. So maybe I'll start because I have sort of like a general foundational sort of definitional view of of grief. Does that sound? Yeah. You were telling me too about this kind of new diagnosis. Yeah. So so one of the things that I wanted to sort of look into is just the way that we define grief. And there's so many words in psychology. And, um, you know, one of the things that I, I appreciate the, the differentiation is between bereavement, which is the experience of losing a loved one to death versus grief, which is the normal, natural, emotional, physiological, social reactions, and then mourning. And mourning is actually a very cultural kind of thing. It's the way we show Grief. It's the, you know, wearing all black, it's the sitting shiva, it's the, you know, different cultural, you know, sort of customs and the ways that people engage in that. Um, and I sort of just appreciate the, the differentiation because I love calling words what they're supposed to be. But also, um, I think it is a helpful thing to separate the like, the loss versus the sadness versus the sort of display. Mm-hmm. Um, and so loss in a lot of ways can be, you know, is most 
typically the death of a loved one. That's what we're talking about here. Um, loss of a loved one through a relationship conflict or breakup. I mean, this movie is, is a multiple loss kind of story. It's yeah. both the loss of her life. It's also the loss of her um, that, you know, Shay, Shailene Woodley, sort of her falling off that pedestal to realize that she's sort of walked away from this family in a certain way. Um, serious illness can be something. Um, loss of one's abilities, right? Somebody who um, becomes physically disabled or, or you know, loses um, some form of functionality, right? Um, and then just other sorts of, you know, loss of idealized self. So there, there are lots of ways that one can, can grieve. Today, we're mainly talking about loss to, to death. Um, and one of the things we always hear is what's called the, the Kubler-Ross stage theory of grief. So when you yeah, hear the that, five stages the five stages, grief. right? So those are uh, denial is what they usually say. Um, it, it is a little more sort of nuanced to explain that it can also be dissociation or isolation, followed by anger bargaining, depression, and finally acceptance. Mm -hmm. So um, for many years, that was sort of the model that folks were holding on to. It's a model that I had to learn for the licensing exams. Really? Um, yeah, it's on the, it's on the clinical psych, uh, California um, psychology exams. Um, but interestingly, there is no empirical support for grief as divisible into these distinct stages. There's no uh, empirical support that it is linear meaning you could bounce back and forth between all of these stages all the time. Mm -hmm. And there's no information we have that shows that it's time bound, mm -hmm. um, yeah. which like is so real, but also like, I mean, you, do you yeah. know this model? Like you've yeah, heard of this? No, it's so curious to me because it feels like, not that this was the, um, someone thought this way, but do you think it the idea that you have five stages mm -hmm. is a way for someone to compartmentalize and say you will get through this? In other words, yes, you flip flop back and forth, mm. but it's almost like a contractual thing. Okay, denial. I moved on. I'm very angry. Okay, that's done. I'm bargaining. I'm right. bargaining. Okay, now I'm depressed. You know, like I, I don't. I, it's curious. Like obviously these are real, and it's interesting. Obviously, like you said, that, uh, that you can bounce back and forth, and there's no. I don't, I don't great words you're using there but you know, you know makes me think it certainly does help when someone initially said that and then someone said oh I love that yeah what? I mean I think having something that's so concrete is comforting for people but all research like all the research that we always talk about is just like so nuanced and behavior so much more complicated than that but I think having this very discreet linear thing yeah is probably helpful for people to that's why it perpetuated and probably people latched onto it yeah, I mean, it's... Because you it, don't want to hear, like, I don't know. I don't know. It's going to be all over the yeah. place. I don't know. It's going to be all over the place. Yeah, I mean, how many times is, like, the joke, just, like, the first stage is denial, or, like, whatever, right? Oh, bargaining. Right. Like, it's literally used <laughs> in, like, sitcom. Like, it's yes. so well-known, right. this yeah. sort of thing. But the problem is, with something as concrete as that, it also means that if you don't fit within this concrete structure, that you are somehow abnormal. Mm -hmm. mm. And so... One of the interesting things that uh, I've thought about for a long time is the previous, so they just dropped, uh, new DSM just dropped in March, um, which truly was news to me that okay. there was a new DSM, uh, which is the Diagnostic Statistical saying? Manual, okay. the Diagnostics Manual for- Wait, what's the, is it six? No, it's DSM-5 TR, text revised. So it is a revision to the previous- Five and a half. Uh, yeah, 5.1. Uh, basically, but they'll, uh, so usually about every like eight to 10 years, they'll do a full new one. The last one came out in 2013 with DSM-5. Mm -hmm. um, 
to be honest, like, I think COVID, uh, I think they were just like, you know what, we got to put something out because DSM-5 was actually several years delayed. It was supposed to be every like 10 years, but DSM-5 was after like 14 or something like that. Um, but so one of the things within DSM-5 was um, what is called like uncomplicated bereavement. And so uncomplicated bereavement was um, basically sadness, right? Uh, sadness, uh, you know, identity disruption, disbelief about the death, um, yearning, longing for the, for the loss of a person um, that lasted up to uh, like six to 12 months. So basically after six to 12 months, you would fall into what was qualified as like complicated bereavement previously. And that is, uh, was non-diagnosable. And so it weirdly became like, now your grief equals major depressive disorder, right? You had just a time bound. It was time bound. It was just this arbitrary time. And so the only new, like full on diagnosis of this DSM-5 TR, there's a lot of um, qualifiers. They've added um, like suicidal thoughts, suicidal ideation as like a certain qualifier to a lot of things. There's a lot of like, um, they've sort of revamped a lot of their cultural work within the DSM and stuff. But mm-hmm. like the main new diagnosis is what is now called prolonged grief disorder. And I actually remember a year ago uh, or two years ago, a friend of mine also lost their dad. And, you know, 12 months after was still a mess. Like every single day was like, this is impossible. This is so hard. And I remember being like, well, weirdly, I know that like you don't qualify as grieving anymore. Now it means you're a depressed person, mm-hmm. which is so, uh, it, it's so messy. It's so like labely. Yeah. And so one of the things that's interesting is the prolonged grief disorder actually sits within the trauma and other stressor related disorders. And we've talked about um, PTSD in the earlier episodes. I'm sure we'll talk more about it very soon. Um, but I really like the, the categorization of a trauma or a stressor-related disorder because it is, is essentially saying something really bad happened and you yeah. feel really bad. It doesn't say you are disordered. It says something bad happened and therefore your reactions, while they may be, you know, quote, maladaptive, they may, they may have negative sort of results for yourself. They may be impacting your life, but it is not because you are disordered. It is because something bad happened. And so they've added this prolonged grief disorder, which essentially means that like 12 months ago or only six months ago for children, um, 12 or more months ago that someone has died and that that, that death, um, you know, has caused you to have uh, identity disruption, marked sense of disbelief about the death, avoidance of reminders, intense emotional pain, difficulty reintegrating into your life, mm-hmm. emotional numbness, um, you know, and feeling that that life is meaningless or the result of death, which I think like when we think about people's loss of a child, loss mm-hmm. of a spouse, loss of a parent, like these these relationships where, you know, I have a cousin who passed uh, when she, she died when she was 12 years old. And like, I think telling my aunt and uncle six months or 12 months after, like, nah, this, is, yeah. this doesn't fit within normal bereavement anymore. It's like, who gets to say... Mm, yeah what's normal yeah i mean grief is so messy it's non-linear yeah see earlier conversation about the kubler ross stages of grief (laughs) like yeah yeah i mean this is like a a larger conversation though about the dsm in general but isn't all of the diagnoses like just things to give to your insurance company so that they'll cover treatment i mean yes and 
Um, I mean, that's yeah. one, that is one purpose. Um, I will say there are a lot of diagnoses like I, that when you tell somebody they meet the criteria for that can be incredibly containing. It means to right. them that like, yeah. they're not just that, that what's going on with them is something that many people experience. So they mm-hmm. can, you know, a diagnosis can also help normalize things. Um, a lot of people, especially people with, um, like, uh, you know, autism spectrum disorders and things where they are on, um, the sort of mild autism spectrum, like just hearing that, like, Hey, this is actually a thing. This is a way your brain works. When I give people an ADHD diagnosis at the the college counseling center that I work at, like it often feels incredibly validating to know that like, this is really hard for you because this is a diagnosis that you meet the criteria for. And so, yes, like it does help code things for insurance. And we've talked about like, especially with like gender dysphoria where it's like, oof, why you got to make it about the fact that they're trans? Like the world is messed up and terrible to them. They're not disordered. The world is disordered and they're just being trans in it. And so like, that's a little messy, but we have to, you know, I have to use that when I write somebody a letter for surgery. But, but, you know, I think that saying to somebody like, something really bad happened. And that's, you know, one of the things I love about when I can give somebody uh, information about PTSD is like something bad happened and your body is reacting to a bad thing. Mm -hmm. That does not mean you are disordered. It means that you're you're just trying to, trying to cope. And so I think it's about the, it's the tone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it makes sense too, like you said, for it to be within the trauma related disorders category. I think that makes a lot of sense and even the um symptoms that you were mentioning there's some overlap with like ptsd mm-hmm. symptoms as well especially yeah. numbness mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so that's kind of what i looked at mainly just to give like a new sort of 411 on how we're starting to look at and i will say this this dsm dropped in march so i will be learning more about it and all of those things um it's a small revision, so um, there. If y'all have, I know a lot of therapists listen to this and stuff. If you have thoughts, feedback, please like give your two cents. We'd love to hear um, what you have to say. But that's kind of my four one one. What'd you look yeah. at? Yeah. So okay, so we were talking about this a little bit before, but a lot of the studies that I so I looked at kind of the neurobiology of grief, and a lot of it maps onto what you've already talked about. But they looked at groups of complicated grief individuals and non-complicated grief individuals. Mm, mm-hmm. and so I wanted to, I guess, before I get into that, how is complicated grief similar and different to prolonged grief? I mean, I think primarily time. Um, mm-hmm. The main thing is what they're, is what they're looking for. Um, they do try to sort of standardize a thing of like saying that like, you know, children, they, they try to separate out like children's and adults grief, but I really think that time is the primary factor. Like you're allowed to be a total mess for six months. And then after that, you're not, you're not processing it normally or, or healthily or, or whatever the, the sort of judgmental. So is that called complicated yeah. grief? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So is it the same? As, how is it different from prolonged? That it is the same, I think. It's the same, um, okay. Yeah, and in fact, the, the last diagnosis in just regular DSM is just called uncomplicated bereavement, but there was no complicated bereavement oh, diagnosis. Oh, so it's just like the absence of, okay, that's yeah. interesting. Um, how does, um, what's uncomplicated, like meaning? Uh, six months, a normal amount of time yeah, to be like sad about your spouse, according to the people who according made the people. book. So they had uncomplicated um, yeah. bereavement or grief or yeah. whatever. Okay. yeah. Yeah, I I think too like about this five stage theory of of or you know um, theory of grief. There's now like the dual process model 
mm-hmm. of grief. Have you heard about that? I've heard about it, but you seem so to know more. So that's kind of like, yeah, like the newer <laughs> model that I think is in more favor. But basically, you know, it really speaks to that nonlinearity of really going back and forth in kind of your everyday life. You have loss-oriented coping, so things that focus on the grief, as well as restoration-oriented coping, so things that focus on kind of, uh, you know, processing and and moving on from the grief. And so Mm -hmm. it's this kind of back and forth between those kinds of behaviors. Yeah. Um, And so that's kind of the model that's favored now to kind of understand grief. Yeah. I mean, it's a better model. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, the nonlinearity alone, I feel like, is uh, way more accurate. I, and I do feel like the Kubler-Ross model, that five stages, just feels very, like, confirmation bias. <laughs> like, very, like, well, yeah. That, yeah, that's the like other thing, too, though. Is like, the research that was done is in treatment-seeking individuals. Right. So there's that whole, like, all of these early models were based on people who are showing up With a desire treatment. to move through this. Yeah, with a desire yeah. for treatment and therefore, and like... So that's super biased in terms of the entire population of people like having experiencing grief also the people seeking treatment almost always historically in psych research are white people and grief like culturally Mm -hmm. culturally is so vastly different the way that Mm -hmm. different people grieve the way that different cultures like you know even just like whether you speak the name of the dead whether you like how long you're you're supposed to mourn how long you're supposed to like the way you mourn publicly um, culturally, whether it's appropriate to just be screaming, crying, you know, you know, pounding your fists on a casket at a funeral, or whether you're mm-hmm. supposed to be sort of tight-lipped. Did you say this to me? Maybe you said this, and, and maybe I made it up. So, um, or maybe I'm the smartest person of the three of us. I mean, it's possible. Uh, I'm just letting the, let the listeners know that this is going to be amazing. Oh, okay. No, I heard <laughs> from something that, uh, and there might be more than two for the argument of this. There's two types of people. Uh, two types of reactions within, let's just say, uh, 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 the immediate funeral situation, Mm -hmm. Uh, the death of someone. There is the person within your family, let's say, that hits the ground running immediately, and I don't mean emotionally, just a taskmaster, gets everything done, organizes, Mm -hmm. you know, manages the house. Uh, Don't stop moving. Mm -hmm. And they take control and that's where their power comes. This is Brene Brown. Now I know who to- said this. Yeah. Uh, and the second one is the person who kind of just stands in the middle of the room and cannot function and needs people to take care of them. because they. And then the person who's running around, most likely, because she was comparing herself, is going to crash right. later. Right. And then the person here is stuck in this fog and they need, they don't know which, I don't know if that's a true thing, but I just remember hearing that uh, and it felt interesting, and it does feel like we all know those people who uh, are, are are more on top of it <clears throat> in, yeah. the, in the home. Say. Yeah, well, and I definitely, you know, I think there is a real thing of, like, people, some people are, are very action-oriented with their emotional pain in general and, and feel a, a real need to, it. like, uh, fix it, to, mm-hmm. to do things, to change things, and then there are some people that um, sort of sit in it uh, a little bit differently and um, yeah I mean Brene Brown I think is brilliant and wealthier yeah. than any of the three of us on this podcast so <laughs> therefore if if yeah. dollars if dollars are brain cells she's doing fine. yeah so. she's doing okay yeah I, I think I mean it speaks to like just coping in general right but also it sounds almost like nervous system 
reactivity, right? Even mm-hmm. like the fight or flight response. So some people, the way that they deal with the that kind of trauma or these kinds of like very stressful events is it pushes them forward. They're fighting, so to speak, but like, mm-hmm. you know, just focused on getting things done and other people kind of freeze in that and they're yeah. so overwhelmed. Their nervous system is so overwhelmed with the the stress of what is happening, they, they can't do anything. And yeah. it's really just just physiologically how people react to, to stress and, and trauma. Yeah, it's real. Yeah. It's real. Um, but yeah, so I also looked at studies of people's brains. Um, so some of it that we kind of touched on, so we'll, we'll say complicated grief because that's what's used in these studies but we're really also talking about prolonged mm-hmm. grief, uh, kind of they're meaning the same thing. Um, and one of the studies is actually with um, McNally, who is like this big PTSD guy. So it makes sense that he there would be some overlap in terms mm-hmm. of the, the complicated grief. Um, and so one uh, looking at emotional reactivity, actually, we were talking about uh that in terms of this movie we see a lot of emotional reactivity Mm -hmm. so they had um, people with complicated grief and people with non-complicated grief watch these emotional movies and measured um, physiological responses so they didn't see too many differences but they did see um, this kind of inability to activate or no to to like yeah activate their parasympathetic nervous system so that thing that kind of calms you down to like slow your heart rate, to you know slow your breathing, kind of just like a, a blunted ability to kind of do that um, in the people who are experiencing complicated grief, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Yeah, that numbness. Yeah, yeah, That's... and it's it's a physical reaction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, another study looked at this, so they had people in a scanner. They showed them um, pictures of their deceased loved ones with like mm-hmm. an emotional caption with it okay. versus pictures of strangers uh, with kind of neutral captions. Right. And they found that in people uh, with complicated grief, there was more activation in the basal ganglia, specifically the nucleus accumbens, which is this part of the brain involved in the reward pathway. Right. Um, and it was also correlated with their self-reported yearning. And mm. so yearning is really this, like, um, you know, part of wanting, uh, part of, le- you know, wanting portion of reward or liking portion of reward. Um, we see it activated uh, in studies of romantic love, um, parental love. So it's it's activated yeah, in living loved ones. Right. Um, but really this yearning, this kind of persistent yearning, um, that is speaking to the motivation and action part mm-hmm. of this reward system, um, which, yeah, is really sad. It's really sad. Yeah. Do you know, in in French, the word for, like, the, the turn of phrase for I miss you is something like tu me manque, which actually means, like, you are missing from me. Like, mm-hmm. you are not yeah. here. That piece is gone. That piece is gone, yeah. and that's sort of what it makes me think of. And to, if anybody speaks better French than me, like, please correct that, but I... That's how I think of it, and it's sweet and poetic, so I'm going to keep thinking it. Actually, I, I reject your corrections. So the, <laughs> so just I'm clear as the, the, the least educated here of us on this. So what they found in that study is that the reaction from the photo was quite physically a yearning yeah. for that 
person mm-hmm. for that, yeah. that thing. And, and they, could not, they could not control it slash shut down or process it. But it, yeah, it lights up the same part of your brain, brain that yearns. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that that wanting for something that's rewarding, right? In yeah. this case, like love yes. or whatever. Um, that's what's lighting up. There's also other studies that show that um, parts of the brain involved in emotion regulation aren't as activated in people experiencing complicated grief versus people with non-complicated grief. Oh, so, interesting. You know, there is evidence that they're not is able to regulate their emotions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that it's truly like physiological what's it what they're experiencing. It's more than I mean like, you know, the line between cognitive and and you know, physical and all of those things, but there's yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, there's so, you know, it's not like totally it it's a very small field. There hasn't been a lot of studies sure. on it. Sure. And there's a lot of differences in the population, so it's hard to kind of generalize, but um, yeah, those are two findings. There's also just structurally like lower brain volumes uh, in people experiencing complicated grief, um, wow. lower cognitive functioning and like mm-hmm. you know, psycho- psychological tests. Um, so yeah, I mean, they are kind of physiologically and neurally distinct and from people having non-complicated grief. There's like a blunted, like the, you know, it is the thing where like, that there is a loss of color in the world. Yeah. There is yeah. like a loss of nuance. So there's a loss of uh, all of that. Yeah. Is that yeah. connected also? I mean, you know, so many times you'll have, you know, those who are in relationships with one another, especially if they're, well, not necessarily, but like people's grandparents and then someone's grandparent passes away and then two years later within a quick piece of time, sometimes even faster, the other mm-hmm. one passes away. Oh, yeah. Like... Yeah, like, I so imagine that, their body is is taking on a lot of that, and the toll seems yeah. that yearning is becomes, uh, uh, un- pathological. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a study in men specifically who had high levels of numbness following the death of a loved one, have high levels of cortisol as like long as a year and a half later. Wow. Um, and so, this complicated grief kind of drives this cortisol effect but this broken heart syndrome is kind of one of the only like medical outcomes that people talk about when they're talking about grief yeah i know i think we just don't like being sad yeah it's uncomfy it's uncomfy it is discomfortable (laughs) you know there was something this is uh, only to bring a child aspect of this too i'm sure it's a whole other thing but the descendants you know like if you read there was a you know we went through so many drafts and scotty who is the younger daughter uh is very much obviously in the the movie but even more so in the book okay uh, mm. obviously tons is cut from the book you right know, uh, all, all, although it's a very faithful to the book but we did a pass even of the script where we focused heavily on Scotty mm-hmm. uh, as sort of our in on the on Matt because it, it does start with Matt not being able to deal with her and she gets in trouble with school which is in the movie but she was also taking pictures of her mom in the coma and, oh that's in the movie right. yes yeah yeah but yeah, that's yeah. such a big part oh, of the thing of the... so there was a draft where we started with Scotty where mm-hmm. we started almost in her point of view and at school with this book yeah you know and like a show and tell type thing uh so and i remember it just sort of that sort of became a big stitch work for that particular pass you know before mm-hmm. we sort of shifted into more of a matt driven 
mm-hmm. you know, which makes complete sense, you know. Yeah, uh, obviously being very Clooney forward. But very Clooney forward, but also like, you know, to add the voiceover, make sure we, we're watching him be on this journey. Yeah. But anyway, so I just remember that because it was her dealing with the emotions of it and they were all very erratic. And, uh-huh. Yeah. And, and she was... You know, pretty much why she said, I want to go camping there. Like, she's losing so much. Mm-hmm. She's processing yeah. it differently. I, it's so... The way that children process grief is so interesting because, like, the the childhood relationship to mortality is so distant. Like, it's so far like often kids like we we know that children and and like teenagers especially have like a decreased view of mortality there's there's all sorts of research that shows that like that's why teenagers are often reckless like they they believe themselves to be invincible and I remember when I was um 13 or 14 uh, I was going on a a school trip a, a a classmate we were going on a trip actually to France that my parents let me go on somehow and my older sister was coming as a chaperone, which is how I got to go. Uh, but I remember that a week before the trip, one of the girls in my class who was coming with us, her mom died suddenly. And she went on the trip. Mm. Oh, wow. Because it was at that point, like, paid for. And, it, I, I, you know, I think it, it, yeah. I get it. it. It makes sense. And I remember at the time having no sort of ability to hold this sort of knowledge or info. I'd had another good friend uh, a few years earlier whose dad had died. Um, And so I knew a little bit about like, whoa, what is this? But I remember her, she would kind of make jokes about uh, like, and very morbid jokes about like her mom's body, right? Like, and referring to it as like her mom's dead, like her hands turned blue from from a, a plastic bag in the rain. She was like, oh, I look like my mom. Right? And like sort of saying these things. And I remember like the room generally being like, skirt, like what do we do with this? And I just remember being like, I don't know what to say, but I also know that like, I don't know what she's going through. So I'm just gonna like, let it be. Like she's not talking about my mom, therefore like, but I like, I just remember it being so stark and just such like dark jokes. And she, you know, and, and I, I think at the time she was just, she just wanted somebody to acknowledge like what had happened. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Cause like we didn't know what to do. You know, we didn't really know what to, to say. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people chose sort of to not talk about it. But yeah, I just, I re- I'll never forget that moment at like, yeah. at like 13 or 14. And I'm not going to say her name uh, just for, for privacy. But, um, but yeah, I just, I'll never forget when she, she said that and we sort of were like, huh. Yeah, you know, that almost makes me think, too, about, like, because it's so abstract and because it seems so far away, this, like, desire to make it tangible, almost, of, Mm -hmm. like, trying to see or, like, connect her current physical experience to, like, death somehow, like, just really struggling to process it and make it real to her. She was probably trying to... She was, yeah, she was trying to just integrate the fact. And especially, yeah, yeah. I can imagine, I mean, yes, I get why she went on the trip, and I'm, I'm glad that she did. But also, like, you know, sort of as you named Jim, like, when, it's not real until you go home, yeah. right? And so yeah. then sort of stepping into this totally surreal... I mean, most of us had never been out of the country on that trip. This was in, like, eighth grade. You know, like, just this thing of, like, this totally surreal yeah. experience and just trying to really integrate. Like, did this really happen? Mm-hmm. Am I really gonna... Because this was a very sudden 
This yeah. was a very out of the blue. I think this was like a, like, I don't know that, that it was like an, a brain aneurysm or like an, you know, oh gosh, yeah. a- aortic embolism kind of thing where it was just boom, just done. Hmm. Um, and yeah, it was, uh, yeah. Well, it's interesting. It's like the, cause that, that makes me think about how, uh, a number of, uh, I, not necessarily with my dad just because I was flying the next day and wasn't. And, but I do think that there are so many times when we're around someone, or maybe I've had that before, uh, and I've used the term, the show must go on. Mm-hmm. So in other words, we, we choose to, like, I have to finish this day, mm-hmm. I have to do this, I'm going on this trip, mm-hmm. you know, uh, this will be good. And, and, and then I believe I, I've grappled with, was this the right choice? Mm-hmm. What am I doing? You know, I'm, you know, the, I, I imagine guilt sometimes creeps in yeah what am I I, I'm having fun I shouldn't be having fun Mm -hmm. I shouldn't be laughing but I need to do this but I have to finish this and everyone's tiptoeing around you trying to do Mm -hmm. what 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 you need so I imagine there's so much going on for any person but I think that we both want a distraction Mm -hmm. and then we don't want this distraction yeah because we don't because we're either waiting for the wave to hit us when is it going to hit us you know, there's a vulnerability when it hits us. Yeah. We're going to be ugly. And by that, I mean cry. Like, it's going yeah. to, it's going to feel uh, exposed, you know. And I do think, you know, not that it minds, I would label it uncomplicated, but it's like, you, you're never going to have, like, a, a quick wave of grief or yearning or whatever that is. And I think, like, with an earthquake, it, it just settles faster. Mm-hmm. Like an aftershock. Yeah. Not for, obviously, I, I assume that means complicated. That's not the case. Yeah. I mean, it's all messy. And I think that, like, kind of the, the one of the main takeaways that I, I hope that folks are getting from this is, like, that that it is messy does not mean it is wrong or bad and that there's kind of no wrong way to yeah. engage in these. And, and I'll say, um, to just name, uh, you know, the reason I chose this movie this week uh, is because like I lost somebody uh, that was a, a really important mentor to me and I've been thinking about them and like what it means to have had them in my life and the fact that they're not there anymore and you know I, I, I thought to do this while I was in the middle of my work day I attended like a live streamed memorial for them and so I like went from like seeing a client to weeping in my chair for an hour to seeing a client and like this sort of thing of this like compartmentalized yeah. grief. And I will say like, I, and I also got the news in such like a therapist way. I got the news from Instagram when somebody like DM'd me and most of my, I have all my texts go to just show that it's like a message. So I can't read it on my phone while I'm like doing things, but this was through Instagram. And so the message popped up mm-hmm. and was like, did you hear about Marta while I was doing therapy? Mm-hmm. And so I compartmentalized it. And I was like, well, that is not for right now. That is not for this moment. And also like, whoo. And I felt this sort of mm-hmm. stuffed like emotion inside of me. And then it was like, I was supposed to like go meet up with friends. And like, I did that. And then it was so cathartic to then go to this memorial and just bawl my eyes out. Like I was, I was just weeping. And then to put it away and then go and see somebody because that was what I needed to do next. Yeah. And so I've just, that was sort of reeling from that. And this movie was a really nice way to sort of actually engage in some of the thoughts and the process about that. Yeah, I, 
I, I think, you know, like compartmentalization, I don't think is bad in and of itself. It's like incredibly adaptive, but giving mm-hmm. yourself the space to express those emotions, I think was probably really valuable because I think the suppression of them for a prolonged period of time, that's where you get into trouble. Basically. There'd be danger. That's where the cortisol yeah. comes from, right? It's exactly. the like the effort that it takes to keep your body numb is yeah. stressful. It is, yeah. yeah. Oof. Mm. Heavy one. Heavy one. Yeah. I was also thinking real quick, again, back to the movie, because it's one of the things I, uh, it was in the book, so I credit Cowie, but, and I do not remember <clears throat> exactly what he said or what he shared, but the character of Sid, who they sort of pull mm-hmm. along, yes. kind of a comedic relief. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, and another annoyance, you know, that Alex claims she needs mm-hmm. along this journey to kind of fuck around with Matt, her dad. Mm-hmm. And then they have this moment where Sid's on a couch uh, and he has a one-on-one oh, with, yeah. with yeah. George Clooney's character. And I always thought it was such a pivotal, very typical to like, we think he knows who this person is and then right. Sid shares a story. That uh, uh, his dad had just died. Yes. And so it just changes the whole context of this kid. Of this kid. Totally, yeah. And I do think that that connects to why, partly why Clooney holds his tongue when um, her dad, when Scott is mm-hmm. is berating him. Because you, he's not in that man's body. He doesn't, he lost a daughter. He lost, right. you know, yeah. it has a completely different context for him. Mm-hmm. And, and he does, he needs only to be the villain you know yeah because at the end of the day you say that what good what does it change it changes yeah. nothing and he's already dealt with that so it's like everyone's coming to the table and exposing exposing here's who I am and you know obviously we deal with each other we don't know what's going on with that person mm-hmm. or like your friend mm-hmm. I don't know what to do here but this is something mm-hmm. you know anyway that was neither here nor there I just thought it was like a, a, a nice theme of like um people process in different ways. Yeah. Yeah, I can't believe we forgot to talk about Sid. We forgot like, to talk about <laughs> Sid, <laughs> who's sort of... Favorite. He's yeah. kind of an ass, but in, like... And at first, you're sort of like, you don't like him. He's, right. he's a tool. Well, he's, like, saying annoying things and being annoying. And then when he reveals that, it, it just makes so much more sense why Alex is gravitated towards him and really, like... Yeah, because his around. dad just died. And he does name... His dad died... And he said he was hit by a drunk driver, and he goes, "Well, both drivers were drunk, so yeah. you know that his dad was also drinking and driving, yes. and it like yeah. so that is like a messy, that yes. is also a messy parent just, death, just me- messy in all the ways. But yes, it's yeah. it's uh, it it makes a character complicated in like three lines. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess we've not disproved the validity of your awards for this film <laughs> as we had set out to do. <laughs> I, I, we really wanted to I come in here and undermine the Academy of Motion Picture mm-hmm. Arts and Sciences and just be like, y'all fucked up. Yeah, he did not deserve that. Listen, look, yeah. you did. Take back that statue. No, I think you deserve your <laughs> award Agreed. as as yeah. as, Thank as much you. as anyone Thank you. has ever deserved it. It's a beautiful story to get to like tell uh, screen wise. It's a really beautiful yeah, story. It is. it is a really unique film. Um, 
You have been such a pleasure. Oh, it was so much fun. I learned this is amazing, so much. Yeah. It was like a little mini therapy. Well, I'm so glad. Well, to make it even more intense, we'd love to have you back to do The Way Way Back, which is really, wow. that's so much more personal, that story, I know. more personal, because that's based a lot on me. So, yeah, that's based so, on yeah, you. And then, then one of my do, favorite movies. We should do it. I'd love to hear the psychology behind this. Oh, I mean, we'll do our best, but it's your brains. So, yeah. well, mo- here, here's the thing. Joanna and I will have to meet on the side and be like, it's messed up. <laughs> It's real. <laughs> yes. I already know it's messed up. Yeah. I already know it's messed up. Yeah. Yeah. There's a real darkness there. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's an unbelievable film. For those listening, uh, go watch The Way Way Back. Go watch The Descendants. Go watch Downhill. Anything mm-hmm. else you want people to go watch? That's good. Community. Go watch Community. What, sure. what gets you the most money for streams? Oh, that's a hard one because nowadays it's like to give you a little... I don't know if it's like the residual days are done. But I don't know. Community, I guess. I guess community. That's not true though. Watch. Just watch. Just watch. Watch whatever. You Google Jim Rash. No. You know what? Watch no. Sky High. No. Oh, watch Sky High. That there is the movie that watch I Sky actually High. first connected if with you Jim would like over. Me, watch me cackle for you know a good hour and a half. Hey, if you could also just come to a dinner party at my house, and mm-hmm. uh, you get a good amount of cackling mm-hmm. from that one because I'm hilarious. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Yeah, some things will get edited out of this. Yeah, some things, things, I guess. The untruths. Yeah, so no one will get to hear that one. Um, Well, (laughs) this has been another episode of Real Psych. I am Dr. J.D. Barton. And I am Dr. Joanna Whitkin. And our special guest has been Jim Rash. Jim Rash. Oh, I said your name for you. You can. Okay. I was going to say Dr. Jim Rash. Dr. Jim Rash. (laughs) Honorary doctor. Honorary doctor. Dr. Jim Rash. Uh, Please, please, please uh, send us a review. Uh, Subscribe, like, tell a friend. Tell two friends. Tell two friends. And we love you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.